ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Somebody asked me this morning, coming in, are we still in Acts? They were here last week. Moving through the book of Acts and going to come to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to start in verse 8. Uh, and we're going to look through the end of the chapter, Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 8. We'll go through verse 41. So it is a larger portion of the text. This sermon will reflect like that. If you're preaching, sometimes you know you take uh, preached on one verse, one phrase, or now some, I don't know, 41 minus 8, 30-something verses. And so sometimes you take both of those and you have to design the sermon as you work through it. And so today's sermon will reflect that. We'll look at this passage together. We'll walk through it, look at some theology that is in it, look at some points that pulls out. And then at the end, we'll see some lessons that we can learn from our passage. And so we'll just kind of work our way through our text this morning. This passage is the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. And, and really this uh, is uh, what we call the Ephesian narrative in Acts. This is Paul's last time in ministry before he will be put in jail, having gone back to Jerusalem. So here he is as Paul in his freedom, proclaiming God's word in Ephesus. And like Corinth before in Ephesus, Paul will remain there a long time. He'll stay there and do good work. And so we're going to see how his ministry was received and what happens here as the gospel is proclaimed. And when the gospel is proclaimed with the power of God, it goes forth and it will meet opposition. In Ephesus, we see simply that. So look with me in Acts 19. We'll look at verse 8 and we'll continue and I'll read it together, as I said, through verse 41. And he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts 
brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of, of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for relaying these stories to us in the book of Acts that teach us so much even here today for our own life. And may that be the case. May we be taught today, taught again what it means to know and understand the power of God, the power of God to change hearts and lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God, may we hold fast to that gospel, even in the face of difficulty, struggles, even in the face of danger. May we hold fast to the gospel knowing it is life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, 
Again, I said this is a lot in this passage, but I wanted to go back to verse 8. We kind of covered verse 8 and uh, verse 9 and 10 last week, but I wanted to return because our section in the scriptures this morning is building off of what it says in verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul is in Ephesus, and he has returned again to his common practice. In his common practice here, there are three things it says here in verse 8. First of all, it says he was reasoning and persuading. Paul's common practice was to proclaim the name of Jesus by reasoning and persuading. He was entering into the synagogue and then later into the hall of Tyrannus, and he was persuading and he was debating with logical analysis. He was engaging them in their arguments. He was explaining to them why Jesus is the king who has come. He was explaining to them why they should trust this Christ, why they should believe in him, and he was arguing it against all these other things that they believed in and they trusted. He was reasoning and persuading them. He was calling them to believe. This was Paul's method. And how did he do this? It says, secondly, he was doing this boldly. The most frequently used word to describe Paul's ministry and proclamation is boldness. Paul was doing this boldly in the face of opposition, in the face of those who were opposed. We, we can see that in this, in, in, in the midst of a place of a people who do not believe. In fact, they believe the exact opposite of what Paul was saying. Paul was still standing up and he was persuading and he was reasoning boldly with them. In fact, Paul asked the Ephesians if this is what they would pray for him. A little bit later, as Paul goes to Jerusalem, he will be arrested. And, and as he's thrown in prison, he writes back to the Ephesians about this certain boldness. And in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Pray that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He asked the Ephesians who had seen him boldly proclaim the gospel. He asked them to pray that God would give me boldness. Give me boldness. We've seen that prayer in Acts over and over again from the apostles. Give us boldness, Lord, to proclaim your gospel. And what does he say he proclaims in there in verse 8? He reasons, he persuades the kingdom of God. Paul's message was of a ruler who has come to establish his kingdom. This ruler has come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This ruler has come to establish his kingdom here on earth. And Paul is doing this, saying he will restore that which was lost. He will take back that what was destroyed. He will make what was wrong right again. Paul's proclamation of the establishment of the kingdom is that God will undo everything that was wrong and make it all right. Here Christ has come. He will win back the rebellious people with his love. And he will deal finally with those who remain in rebellion of their sin. His kingdom will be established. And in proclaiming this, this king who was coming to establish his kingdom, Paul was, was preaching a message that was going to run headlong into the world system. Into the belief of those around him. This message Everywhere garnered much response, but I find it interesting here in this passage that it mentions the opposition that Paul would receive. 
Every time we read Acts, the gospel's proclaimed boldly. We see that happening. But it, it mentions that many believe. You know, they, they trust in the gospel, but, but many also oppose. And, and when Paul is preaching, when Paul is preaching in most of these forward places, as he takes the gospel into these places, like Ephesus, and we've seen it in city after city, really one of three things happens. Either he's, he's thrown in jail or, or beaten at the same time, or, or he's sneaking out of town because his life is threatened, right? Or, or in some way there's a riot and he has, to, he has to figure his way out. Paul is always going to find opposition when he proclaims the gospel. That's why boldness is needed. That's why he must continue to ask for that from those around him. But it always says many believe, but not here. It simply speaks of the opposition. It doesn't mention those that might believe. Now, we'll see that they are there in a minute, but it doesn't mention those. It speaks of this opposition of one who is proclaiming the kingdom of God and reasoning and persuading boldly this kingdom has come. And why is that? Because as Paul preaches, you have the clashing of two kingdoms. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God has come as this kingdom of God now is entering into an, an, another place. It's entering into the darkness of this world and, and this war is raging. In fact, Paul would call this proclamation of the gospel a war that is a battle to fight. Why? Because it's either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. One of those two will, will win. One of those two will be standing. One of those two will reign. And this world is covered by the kingdom of darkness. As Paul would write again to the Ephesians, reminding them of the battle that they face there when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying our battle is against, not flesh and blood, but these authorities, these cosmic powers, this darkness that we wage. And when the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed with Jesus as the Savior and the King, the prince of this world, the devil himself, is not happy. The prince of the kingdom of darkness will not stand for the proclamation of the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Ever since the fall, Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been in rebellion against God, having, as they thought, torn the, the bonds of God apart and, and cast away their cords from him, as Psalm 2. Having separated themselves from God and, and cast away those cords, they think Humanity thinks themselves to be free, but in reality, as the word of God says, they become slaves to sin, as Jesus says in John 8. They've been enslaved to Satan, as 1 John chapter 5, 19 says. We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John says. So again, Paul is writing and reminding the Ephesians later in Ephesians chapter 2, that before they turned to God, before they had life in Christ, they walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air. As Ephesians 2.2 says, the gospel is light. And this is what Paul proclaims. Satan will fight against it. And Satan will fight in two ways. He will fight through his influence. 
He influences or blinds the mind. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He'll seek to to keep men and women in their sins. He'll seek to, to keep them believing in a lie over the truth. He'll confuse their minds in such a way so that they'll, they'll believe something that is not true and, and they'll call what is wrong right and they'll, they'll call what is evil good and they'll, they'll call all... He's confusing their minds that they'll believe a lie over the truth. In fact, he says, Jesus himself says, Satan is the father of lies. All he does is lie. Notice how we fight according to Paul who wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 35, uh, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul speaks of the warfare that he fights as one that we must destroy lofty opinions. We must rage against knowledge that leads to darkness. We must capture every thought. Why is that? Because Satan is blinding humanity in their sinfulness away from the truth. He's getting them to believe lies. So Paul reasons and he persuades there with the gospel so that he can teach them, show them, bring them to understand what is truth while they're believing a lie. Satan fights by keeping us to believe lies. But he also fights in another way. Though Satan from Scripture cannot force anyone to act, He asserts his influence over the will of fallen humanity by temptation. He puts temptation before that that, that, that sinful man goes toward and runs toward. They they lust after, they desire through the system of this world, as Ephesians 2 says. Through sinful human nature, he, he puts those things before us so as to control us with this temptation. And this temptation leads us into darkness, leads us into bondage, and leads us only into greater, greater peril. Satan goes after the mind and the will. And he is bringing his influence on humanity in these ways. This is the kingdom of darkness. To keep us in lies. To keep us in our lustful desires. But our God is greater. No matter what Satan tries by keeping us in believing lies or putting those temptations in front of us, our God that we serve is greater. His power is on display throughout all of Scripture. Every time we look at God's word, what we see is the power of God on display. I was just reading in Luke's gospel, Luke who wrote the book of Acts, that the uh, 
volume one, if you will, is the gospel of Luke. And, and every story is, is Jesus healing the, the, the lame and Jesus calling the blind to see and Jesus raising the dead to life and, and Jesus calming the storm and, and Jesus multiplying out the bread. Every story speaks to the power of Christ Jesus over this darkness in this world. In fact, whenever John's the Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples want to know. John says, ask him, go to him and ask him, is he the Messiah? And what is Jesus' response? You tell him that the blind are seeing. You tell him that the lame are walking. You tell John that the lepers are being cleansed. You tell him that the deaf begin to hear. You tell him that the dead are even being raised. Jesus says to John's disciples, you want to know that the kingdom of God has come? Look at the power of God on display to change hearts and to change lives. And all of those miracles Jesus speaks of, the blind to see, the lame to walk, the lepers cleansed, the deaf to hear, dead to raise, all of those miracles are there to prove an even greater point. Hear me when I say the physical miracles of the scripture are not an end in and of themselves. They are there to prove an even greater point. A point that is laid out when Jesus heals the paralytic in Luke chapter 5. And they say, who gives you the right to forgive sins? And Jesus says, which is easier? Which is harder? To say your sins are forgiven or to tell this lame man to rise up and walk. But so that you will know I have the power to forgive sins, rise up and walk. You see the physical healings that take place are a demonstration of a greater power. The greater power to forgive rebellious humanity of their sin and give them life. They only testify to the message itself. And the miracles attested to the power to save you from your sin. And so it is here with our passage. As Paul preached the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, as he is preaching this and the kingdom of darkness raises itself up against him as he proclaims this, Paul's message is met with extraordinary miracles. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, proving that the message Paul proclaimed was accompanied with the power of God to do exactly what it says it will do. Now, what happens? As Paul begins to do this, we see two things take place. As the message is being proclaimed with the power of God on display, two things take place. First, along come the counterfeits. Along comes those who try to mimic the power of God, who, who try to tag themselves on to the word of God. And here's what the devil does. The devil will seek to bring many counterfeit saviors into your life. The devil will seek to fill your life with paper Jesuses with paper saviors that you believe will be sufficient and will be enough. And if he can just prolong the game for you, if you will, if he can just give you to jump from one counterfeit to another counterfeit to another counterfeit to another counterfeit, he is doing his purpose in keeping you in darkness and bondage. 
He's filled with counterfeit paper saviors. Here you see it. Paul is doing this healing ministry, and, and you see great and extraordinary things are done, and even casting out demons. And so along comes these sons of a Jewish high priest. His name's Sceva, sons of Sceva. They just sound like trouble. So here comes the sons of Sceva, and they're, they're exorcists, and they see how successful Paul's ministry is, and he's saying Jesus' name. So, so the sons of Sceva come on and say, let's do the same thing. And so they come up, and they speak to this man who is overcome by demons and, and spiritual warfare. In verse, verse 17 there, or verse 13, they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They speak to this demon. And boy, does it backfire on them, right? Boy, does it backfire. It says the demon looks at him, or this man looks at him who was full of demons. He says, I jury you by the Jesus Paul proclaims. And these seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? In other words, you have no authority over me. I'm not fearful of, uh, of you and what you can do. This backfires on them, and these sons of Schema are left battered, defrocked, and humiliated. They're running out, and I, I realize, Allison's in here, and she gets on me. I realize that I was, I was reading this. I said naked. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be naked. That's the proper way to do it. Naked something different. They ran out of the house having been beaten having been stripped and gone out. The humiliation is in place. Why? Because they sought to do what they cannot do. They sought to take advantage of a name they did not know. They sought to be counterfeits in a war of, over darkness, and it will only come to destroy you. But God uses this episode. Notice how he does. Here these sons of Sceva try to cast out the demon, and they can't. And the demon there overpowers them and sends them out battered. And, and when that happens, man, does it cause attention in Ephesus. Many notice it. It became known, as it said, to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. What came out of this was when they tried to use Jesus' name, though they did not know him, people recognized that Jesus has power. His name is glorious. Those demons said, I know Jesus. And we, they, they recognized they must bow down to his name. And they even heard of Paul. They recognized that through Paul, Jesus Christ has done great and glorious things. But for them, for them, they try to make a play, try to use Jesus, but they're only counterfeits. And to try to offer up a counterfeit to the good news of God, try to offer up a counterfeit of hope and a savior, it only leads to their destruction. The world, as I said, and Satan himself is going to try to offer many counterfeits. What is it that you're trusting in? If it's not the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for us, then you're trusting in a counterfeit. If it's not of the God of Scripture who, who came for us through his son Jesus, then you're trusting in something other than that. And you're leaning on a paper Savior that cannot save you and would be burned up just like the rest. 
our world still is full of counterfeits. When I was in seminary, I was headed up to Cleveland. I'd never been that far north in America. Now, I'd been over the world, but Cleveland, I mean, good grief, that's almost Canada. <laughs> in fact, you get to the coast and you can see Canada. It's like right there, you know, on that great lake. On the way, I was riding with a pastor friend, and he was like, hey, there's this prosperity gospel preacher that has a pretty big following in Columbus, Ohio. He's like, let's stop in and see what's going on. And I was like, no. And he said, yeah, he was driving. <laughs> we stopped in, and I was sitting there and just kind of sitting toward the back and watching. I was already feeling a little weird. And I took one of the little cards, and I was messing around. I said, let's see what happens. And I filled out a visitor card, guest card. Nobody's visitors, but you know what I'm saying. Filled out one of those, and they came by, and they took it. And about halfway through the service, I was like, you ready to go? He's like, yeah, I'm ready to go. So we left. Didn't think much of it. Moved on, realized that wasn't for me. About three weeks later, I go and check the mail at seminary. And I go to our little post office box, and I get it. And I got a card from this ministry. And I get back to where I was working, and I open up the card, and in it, they send this little postcard, three by five, and on this little postcard, a two by two square of a cloth. Now, this cloth was a two by two square, and this cloth had been prayed over. This cloth had been anointed. This cloth only takes $20, and it'll be activated. <laughs> you send your $20, and this cloth will be activated for you your faith offering. This was not first century Ephesus. This was 20th century America. This was an offer to say that here is something that you can actuate by your financial gift so that you can be blessed. This is an offer of the sons of Sceva. This is an offer of the sons of Sceva. And what we know is that the price to realize the miracles of God, the price to realize the hope of God, the, right, the price to know the power of God has already been paid. We don't have to offer $20. We don't have to actuate this. We don't have to do anything like that. That price has already been paid. It's been paid by Jesus himself who died for us on the cross. And it is available to anyone, not just someone who fills out this card, but anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved because of what Christ Jesus has done. And like the sons of Sceva, many, I'm afraid, call on Jesus without knowing him. They want the power without the gospel. They want the sweet little good luck charm in their pocket, but they don't want the incarnate son of God, the one who came to rule and reign, the Lord of heaven and earth. They don't want to follow after him. And the example is even found in that prosperity gospel I was speaking of that invokes the name of God and claims his promises and his blessing, but only for financial security rather than eternal damnation. Only for financial security. Does it offer this? Don't believe such lies. The devil wants you to think that our security is found in the wealth of this world. 
The devil wants you to think that our security is found in, in a name with no power. The gospel says, repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus who came, suffered, and died for you. Not in a Jesus we create with our minds, but in one that we find in his word. The second section here is anger and riots. You got counterfeits and you got riots. The gospel had spread in such a way in Ephesus that the people of Ephesus were changing. They were changing and the city was changing. Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis, the, the largest building in the world at the time. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world, the biggest building in existence. And here, these people were making great money by creating little temples of Artemis to, to give out and to sell so other people may worship. You see, Ephesus was a city that was built on idolatry. But now that the gospel had come in, people were changing. The heart of mankind was moving away from the idolatry toward Artemis to trusting in Jesus. They were giving up their idols and following after him. And it became such a big deal that this silversmith Demetrius says, look, our jobs and jeopardy of life is on the line. We can't keep doing this. We got to put an end to this or we're going to lose our money, our revenue. You see, the heart of mankind is to worship and therefore idolatry becomes this great sin and anything that's a great sin can become prosperous to us. You don't have to look far to, to see that in America whenever sinfulness is, is putting a dollar figure on it and capitalism takes over. Just look at prostitution or slavery for, for sexual activity. Just look at all these things that now people make millions of dollars on because they're exploiting our sinfulness. And what the devil wants us to do is put those temptations continually in front of us that they would worship something else, somewhere else, and somebody else, anything other than God. And what really happens here is that the heart of man is an idol factory, as the great theologian has said. And we're constantly producing idol after idol. We'll put our worship anywhere and everywhere but with the Lord. And our idolatries of this age and this time are ideas, ambition, and power. All of these things are what we'll bow down to, anything but the one true and living God. And you see, what happens here is whenever the idols begin to be torn down, whenever the idols begin to be destroyed, Satan will not stand for it. No little disturbance concerning the way took place, here it says. They bring in, after Demetrius makes his plea, they, they cause a riot in the, in the streets of, Ephesians, of Ephesus, and, and they scream out, you know, we have no God but Artemis. And now they, they bring them all in, dragging the, the leadership into this hall. They're going to, to bring charges. The riot is taking place. There's so much fear that they won't let Paul enter in. They stop Paul. And, and I like that idea. Paul's like, I'm going in. They're like, no, you're not going in. Even the, the leaders that were, were not Christians were saying, you don't need to go in there. Death will come to you. This mob is angry. You're attacking their worship. You're attacking their gods. This mob is upset. Even this one Alexander says as they are screaming, tries to speak up and defend himself. But it says for two hours they shout him down. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're ready to kill him. 
They refuse to let Paul even go in. It looks as if it's over for some of these Christians. How do you stop a mob when the mob grows? It's impossible. When the mob comes, they they can do what they want to do. And then in the midst of that, the town clerk steps up. The town clerk steps up into the crowd and he calls to them and he says, you guys need to calm down. And he says, listen, either you need to recognize that, that we can't be operating this way. And then he says in verse 37, these people, these men are brought here that you're wanting to bring trial to or even kill. They're neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Sacrilegious meaning they don't idol steal. They haven't jumped into our temples and stole our idols, nor have they blasphemed against Artemis. They don't even speak ill of Artemis. They are simply proclaiming a new kingdom. They're simply proclaiming a new king. And because of this town clerk stepping in, the believers that day were saved. They lived. The assembly was dismissed. Now, So we've laid all of this out. Quick lessons. Real quick. First, it says this. I want to say this. The power of God can fulfill all the promises of God. You need to know that the power of God can fulfill all the promises of God. All, as I said before, these physical healings of this apostolic area, we've touched on this before in in Acts, and we'll see it again. All of these healings during this age, during this time, are given to attest to the word of God and the power of the word. You see, they were not the ends in and of themselves. They were only attesting to the spiritual healing that God can do in your heart and your life. Though you are blind in your sin, he can cause you to see the truth. Though you are lost, he can make you found. Though you are lame, he can cause you to walk again all of those physical healings speak to the spiritual healing of the power of God and what God says he can do he can truly do for he has the power to do it and that power is on display sometimes he does it in a supernatural way like with the demon jumping on those other guys and showing how his name is greater but sometimes he does it in a simple way Like the city clerk who in the providence steps up as no believer but protects God's people even with his words. One theologian, William McEwen, wrote in the 1700s. He says this about God's power. He says, view his power in relation to his promises that you may believe them. In relation to his precepts that you may obey them. In relations to the dispensation of his providence that you may reverence them. To the corruption of your own heart that you may subdue them. To the temptations of the devil that you may resist them. To the frowns of the world that you may despise them. God's power inspires those who believe and terrifies those who do not. God's power is enough for you to overcome sin. God's power is enough for you to overcome death. God's power is enough for you to overcome temptation. God's power, when you trust in him alone, is enough for you to find life and tell the devil to flee. And when you resist the devil in the name of God, he must run from you. God's power is enough. Not only that, the devil will do all he can to keep you away from the truth. 
He will do all he can to keep you away from the truth. In our day, we must not become too sophisticated so as to not believe in the devil and his evil spirits. To do so would be to remove the very teachings of Scripture from our life. The worldview of Scripture is that there is not only a God who is greater, stronger, and mightier, there is a devil who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And the moment we become too sophisticated to that is the moment we have fallen safely into the devil's lap. We must understand that there is a war that is being waged the principalities and powers of this world. And so as we know the power of God is enough to keep his promises, we must also know that the the devil's influence in our life is real and we must constantly be on guard. He will confuse with lies. He will tempt with counterfeits over and over and over again. And I'm sure that you in your life, in your families, in your places, you can speak to those who you know have been confused with the lies of devil himself. You can speak to those you know who are, who are enslaved by the very thing the scripture says, how they have been blinded by the God, uh, or the God of this world and they cannot see the light of the glorious gospel. But Jesus is enough and only the light of the gospel can burst through the darkness of this world. And so we pray that he will. We plead for him to shine. We urge and we call and we reason and we Proclaim with boldness because our God is greater than the power of the devil. And what do we also learn is that the proclamation of Jesus is enough. If we're going to overcome the power of the devil, we simply proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ. It says here as this, this one comes and he's Pleading this town clerk, he says, listen, these men are neither sacrilegious. They haven't entered into our temple and stolen our gods. They're not sacrilegious and they're not blaspheming. They don't even speak about Artemis. They don't even bring Artemis up. What they do is they proclaim their God. Jesus is greater. So we recognize we don't have to wage war on the level of this world. We simply proclaim Jesus as glorious king, as the light who has shined into the world to dispel darkness. We point people to Christ in every way. We preach Jesus. And fourth and finally, the gospel changes lives. When they see that demon jump on those other fellows and they run out naked, beaten. What happens? It says, even the believers came and brought their practices forward. Many said, I I give up the magic of this world. They took their books and they burned them. Fifty some odd thousand pieces of silver on this. We get rid of all of this. Even the believers said, no more. We see what this does. And God uses that to refine them even more. The gospel changes lives. They gave up their spells. They gave up their gods. Even as they preached, they gave up their gods. It changes how they spend their money, right? Because it says to them, we're going to give up these books. We're going to give up these practices. We're going to give up our gods. And even Demetrius says, man, we're losing money. Why? Because as the gospel goes forth, it changes how we live changes how we live. 
And that becomes the ultimate question for us. If the power of God can change hearts and lives, if the power of God can, can cause the blind to see, if the power of God can make the lame to walk, if the power of God can raise the dead to life, if the power of God can do all of that, then why wouldn't you believe the promises of God? That trust in him and you will find life everlasting. Trust in him. And he will give you the longings of your own heart. Trust in him and you will be satisfied. The very thing you are after. For the power of God speaks to the promises of God. What is it today, believer, that's keeping you from following God all the more? What practice do you need to turn in? What thing do you need to confess as they did there? After that demon possession and see what happened. And they, they said, that's no more. What is it in your life that you need to give up so that you can trust God and follow him all the more? Or what is it for you today who have been trusting in the idols of this world instead of the king of the universe, Savior and Lord? May I plead with you to trust in Christ alone for the power of God has been met with the promises of God, and Jesus Christ is all of it. And may his light shine in our hearts and in this dark world today. Let's pray together.